I'll be reading from Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Beginning with verse 35, we read that on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I like to pretend like I've got it made, but there are plenty of things of which I'm afraid. In-laws and snakes and big hairy spiders, lightning, sharp objects, 16-year-old drivers. I fear on a Sunday that you all will find my clothes do not match because I'm colorblind. And while I enjoy a Chinese buffet, I fear what might happen later that day. I'm injured so often that we call it hurt golf. And the beach might explode if I take my shirt off. And, and bulldogs like me will all run and hide from the backup QB of the Crimson Tide. I fear disapproval, conflict, and rejection, the uncertain future, and the next election. So I hope I have made it perfectly clear that even the preacher can struggle with fear. And I know that my wife and my kids, they all wrestle with fear too. And that just stinks because I'm supposed to be the man of the house. And when they fear, I feel like I have failed. I begin today's lesson in this way to share that fear, it has invaded my own heart and my household. Even though I don't know what it's like to be 75 years old with health issues in the midst of COVID-19, I still got fears. Even though we don't all know what it's like to battle cancer, to lose a parent, a sibling, or a child, 
or to be in the midst of a hurricane. We all have got to deal with fear. And so today's message on the topic of fear, it's universal in need. There is not one person or one group of people that we're targeting. Instead, these words have us all in its crosshairs. I have a journey with three stops. And our first is in 2 Timothy chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul is attempting to encourage Timothy to continue boldly preaching the gospel and to use the gifts given to him by God. And this is while Paul himself likely awaits. Paul is waiting judgment, execution probably in Rome for doing that same thing he's telling Timothy to do. And while there are opponents all around Timothy who wish to silence or discredit him. And so with that in mind, we go to the text. 2 Timothy 1, beginning in verse 5. Paul writes, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. A spirit, not of fear. Well, what in Paul's words here is meant to be an encouragement for Timothy to confront and to overcome his fears? Well, in verse 5, he reminds Timothy of his grandmother's and mother's faith. Sincere, dwelling with them. Do you see those words? This is something that is deep and profound and enduring and genuine. And Paul is basically like, and you, Timothy, you are your mother's son, aren't you? You are the grandson of your grandmother, yes? then I know you got the same kind of faith within you. But more than that, I think it's meant to be a, a fear treatment. A fear treatment. The faith of these ladies in Timothy's life is meant to inspire and encourage him. And it's funny, as I keep reading this verse, I kept hearing something like, Timothy, don't let me hear you clucking, because your mama and your grandmama didn't raise no chickens. And then as I continued to reflect on the text, though, it got increasingly personal for me, for Craig. I felt like Paul was yelling something at me, something like, Craig, you know the faith of your grandfather, how he was faithful unto death, the faith of your grandparents and your parents, their lives, their example, their sacrifices, how they raised you and how they taught you. And one thing is very obvious. They did not live. They did not give so that you, Craig, would turn around and live in fear, frozen, crippled, ashamed, anxious, scared, fearful living, disrespects and dishonors the faithful lives of those who came before you. To be honest, it shames their legacy. When combined with the reminder in verse 7 of that text that God 
that God, that God did not give us a spirit of fear, we have then this conglomeration of witnesses, all these witnesses that are expecting more and pushing us to greater things in those times when we're paralyzed with fear. But Paul expresses the confidence that Timothy has that same sincere faith buried deep within him. It's there. And I believe the same lies deep within each of us. It's there. And that right there is a message of hope. Also in verse 7, I think we discover the devastating effects of a spirit of fear. Fear will obliterate the three positive qualities we find at the conclusion of this verse. First, and probably most obvious, fear surrenders power. We become powerless. The words, I can't, become the most used in our personal dictionaries. We only see the walls, the pits, and the barricades. The reasons why something will not work, why it's going to fail... And we miss the roads and the paths and the bridges that lead to success and victory. Second, do you see that? Fear suffocates love. Suffocates love. I mean, what room, what heart has room to love others? What heart has room to love others when it's preoccupied and filled with fear? Or or we choose not to love because we don't want to get hurt by anyone ever again. And as it turns out, the lives of the fearful actually become self-centered and all about them, even if it's in a different way than it happens with the arrogant or with the proud. And then third, you should be able to see Fear surrenders self-control. Make no mistake about it. You are no longer in control of your own life, your own thoughts, your own decisions. You've given the keys over to fear. Fear has taken the wheel. Or, or get this, some good-hearted soul, or how about governmental authority, comes to you and says, my dear... You are so stressed and worried about many, 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 many things. Don't you worry. I'll take care of all of it for you. And guess what? Now you're not in control. They are. Stop number two on our journey takes us to Matthew 25 and the parable of the talents, in which the master has already praised and rewarded the first two servants one with five talents and the other with two. And now let's see what happens when the master comes to the servant with one. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. Fear. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what's yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. Now the hearers and the readers of this parable, us, we have a problem. We have a dilemma. And it's the following. Is the one talent 
servant really and actually afraid or not? For the moment, let's assume yes, that the servant really is afraid of the master. However, observe the master's rebuke in verse 27. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. Now, this is interesting in so many ways. First, I, I think that the servant believes he has, in hiding his talent in the ground, successfully accomplished the minimum expectation. But the master's response shares that's not the case. Second, I am sure that the servant has deceived himself into thinking that he's shown wisdom, prudence, and discernment in guarding what the master has entrusted to him. But as it turns out, the prudent action, the wise action, was something different altogether. The servant could have invested the talent and earned interest. And then third, the servant's fear is driven by an ignorant and partial understanding of the master. He only sees the master as a robber, a taker, a man who's in it for himself. But I wonder if the other two servants realize that the true nature of the master is this, one who in actuality asks for very little and who's ready to give and to bless and to reward with so much more. So take that, and here we go, the very simple, easy application. Are you ready? First, fear adjusts our minimum. It shrinks what we believe we are capable of accomplishing. So to those who have been hiding, to those who've been burying, to those who've been protecting, I encourage you to ask yourself, this week, what is the way in which I can, at the very least, earn some interest? Earn some interest on what the Lord has given me in time and energy and resources and talents, abilities. Second, I believe we need to make sure we're really acting in the name of wisdom and prudence. This right here has been the badge of COVID and one that I myself have encouraged. I encouraged it from the beginning that we should all use wisdom and discernment in these things. But does not this parable show we can deceive ourselves with regard to what is discerning and wise, what is really? And therefore, I encourage you all to continually self-evaluate. Is this really the wise, prudent path, the wise way to live? Because you better be careful. Fear, it can mutate priceless wisdom into something closer to fool's gold. Is it really wisdom? Third, does a mistaken or ignorant view of your master spark your fear? That maybe he's always angry with you? That's not true. Or that he's distant and far away? Well, that's a lie of the devil. Or that he's unfair or excessively demanding. Please know he's a God with expectations, yes. But know that he's ultimately a God who joyously desires to pour out blessings on the faithful. But time out for a moment. Returning to our parable, we, we must devote a moment to considering something very troubling. That the servant wasn't really afraid of the master at all. That it's not fear. No, fear was not the reason he buried the talent in the ground. But instead, 
It is as the master says at the beginning of verse 26, wickedness and sloth. Laziness. Consider a, a couple of verses from Proverbs with me. The way of a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. In other words, in the eyes of a lazy person, you see thorns, 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 thorns everywhere on all sides. And so I'm just going to stay right where I'm at. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. Now, I'm ashamed to confess that I used my fear of COVID, in quotes, can I use air quotes, my fear of COVID as an excuse for Craig's laziness. How about you? Have you used the calling card of fear to get out of doing something? To keep from having to help someone? And make no mistake, I believe that those within these halls this morning are just as guilty in this as those who are joining us electronically from their homes. In fact, we might be worse. We're carrying around COVID in our back pocket to use when needed. Let us not use any supposed fear to excuse or to justify our sloth or any other wickedness. Stop number three for our last text. We go back to Mark 4, as was read in the scripture reading. Jesus famously calms the storm, and, and in verse 40, after performing the miracle, Jesus asks the disciples, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Brothers and sisters, Almost every time when the disciples express fear, the Lord faces it down and confronts it. The Mount of Transfiguration, when Peter hauls in a ton of fish, as Jesus walks on water, before his arrest and crucifixion, after his resurrection, over and over again he says, do not be afraid. And does not this text tell us why fear must be confronted? Look again. In verse 40, and notice that Jesus presents fear as being opposed to faith. And now here, here we go. This is where everyone just gets in a tizzy and things get all wadded up that are better not to be. Oh, Craig, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, the reason I have so much fear is that I just don't have enough faith, that if I had more faith, I would not be so afraid. Well, whoa, wait. Just wait. Do you not think that Daniel was afraid when a law forbade him from praying for a month or else he'd be thrown in the lion's den? Do you not think that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were afraid when the fiery furnace awaited them if they would not bow before a golden image? Do you not think they were afraid as they faced torture, mocking and flogging, chains and imprisonment, stoning, being sawn in two, being killed with the sword, as we find in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11? They had to be afraid. They aren't robots, but here's what the math teacher in me would say. It's this right here. Faith must be greater than fear doesn't mean there's no fear. It's over there in that right side, but what's on the left is bigger. The alligator wants to chomp on that, right, than what's on the right. So is your faith greater than your fear? 
That's what drives a person to obey God rather than man. And this is what causes a Savior to face down betrayal, arrest, and mocking and flogging and crucifixion. Because I believe with all my heart that Jesus was afraid. But his faith was far greater than his fear. But if the opposite is true, if we take that mouth and we flip it around, you shrink, you cower, you compromise. And Jesus could look at those disciples on that boat and he knew these guys, their faith is not, their faith is not greater than their fear. And so we pray like they prayed, Lord, increase our faith. But back to the text. There's always been something in Mark's account which interests me. It's found in verse 36. And leaving the crowd, they took Jesus with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. Other boats were with him. Can you imagine for a moment being on one of the other boats? The windstorm of all windstorms comes upon this sea, and if the disciples in the Jesus boat were freaking out, how much more would someone on one of the other boats? But they are all helpless. There's not a soul on another boat that could do a thing. Those ships, they were going down, and there was no hope in sight. What a scary, vulnerable, exposed feeling that must have been. Brothers and sisters, I'm really glad I'm not on one of the other boats. Aren't you? On the boat with us, we have the Lord of the wind and the sea. On the boat, we have someone who has been tempted in every respect as we are and one who can sympathize with our every weakness. One who knows what it's like to be troubled and to be afraid. And it might seem to us like it did to the disciples that he's sleeping. Or that he just doesn't care about us or what's happening. But he's got it. He still reigns. It is under control. What a blessing to know he is on the boat with us. And that's what matters. That's all that matters. When trying to encourage Joshua to boldly Take on the promised land. Listen to what the Lord tells him in Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you? Freeze just a second. Before I go further, look at that first line. If you're doing something God has not commanded, not commanded, then why? And if you're doing something he's not commanded, you have every reason to be afraid. The Lord continues to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Don't be frightened. Don't be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. In other words, he will always be on the boat. And so let me say this. If you're doing what the Lord commands, first line, no matter how small or how grand, let me say that again. If you are doing what the Lord commands, no matter how small or or how grand, ultimately you have no reason to be afraid. Not afraid of some man, not afraid of some virus, not afraid of anything. Even though, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? For you are with me.
Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And the bottom line is that for far too many of us, for me, those are nice words to read at some funeral, but they aren't words that I live by. Those words, they just stay dead and buried back at the cemetery. Andy Dufresne rots away year after year in prison after being wrongly convicted of a crime. And then one day he shares this epiphany. He says the following, I guess it comes down to a simple choice really, get busy living or get busy dying. Some of us are living in our own prisons of guilt, behind the bars of shame, imprisoned by fear. And this invitation, what it is all about, is a simple choice, really. Are you ready to get busy living? Are you going to continue dying day after day after day? Be freed from that prison this morning of fear. Follow Jesus, have your sins washed away. We invite you right here, right now, to get busy living as we stand and as we sing. Are you Jesus waiting, waiting?